0: From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen.
1: I don't remember a time in my life when I have felt so alive as I did in those moments where you realize... The great capacity for healing and for connection that comes through setting aside your presuppositions about people and just listening to the truth, their truth, about who they are and how they have arrived at the place that they are.
0: Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash radio. That's patreo dot notseenradio slash not seen radio. Thank you. Welcome to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Michael T. McRae. He's an author, educator, and facilitator using the power of personal stories to heal harm, make meaning, and create connection. He works most often with the global empathy nonprofit Narrative 4, and he hosts 10x9 Nashville Storytelling. He writes and speaks on issues of story, conflict, and reconciliation. He lives in Nashville with his wife, Brittany, and his young child. Today, we're going to be discussing his recent book, I Am Not Your Enemy, Stories to Transform a Divided World. Michael McCray, welcome to Things Not Seen.
1: Thank you so much, David. It's a real pleasure to be here. So
0: I want eventually in our conversation to ask about you, but that's going to come at the end of the conversation. On the way to that, I would like instead to ask you about some of the ideas that you raise in this amazing book, because I just have to say at the outset, as I was reading this book, I was floored at certain points and I was in tears at other points. It's a powerful book, but I want to ask you first of all about this word reconciliation, because Early in the book and then at various points in the book, you come back to the notion that reconciliation for people who have been oppressed, for people who have been in situations where they have been harmed either by individuals or by institutions that have power, the word reconciliation is not just loaded. Sometimes it is an awful word, and I'd like to explore why. So let's start out by asking, what's wrong with reconciliation?
1: That's a great question. So A bit of background, my master's is in conflict resolution and reconciliation from a school in in Belfast in the north of Ireland. And I chose that program specifically because of the language of reconciliation. I've always been really taken with that, possibly because of my Christian background and, you know, places in the New Testament that talk about ministry of reconciliation. And so I felt like that was something I wanted to focus on. And so when I went to do this project, traveling in Israel and Palestine and Northern Ireland and South Africa, talking to people who had lived their lives in divided societies and who were trying to find ways to live together well without violence... I was very interested in talking about this idea of reconciliation. And the book starts with me trying to reach out to a Palestinian woman in the West Bank city of Nablus and to say, I would love to come talk to you at your university about this idea of reconciliation. And she writes back and says, this is an inappropriate conversation. We're being occupied, so we should talk about justice and not reconciliation. And this wasn't the first time that I had heard this idea. I'd been traveling in the West Bank and Israel enough to, to hear Palestinians especially talking about normalization. And the problems of acting as if we are all friends when there's such an enormous power imbalance. But it was there was something about the way she put it, this in, inappropriate conversation that struck me. And that kept coming up throughout my whole whole time there. And and what I was realizing was that that reconciliation, that language and that pursuit has in a sense been co-opted by people in power and people of privilege to try to find a way to make ourselves feel better without actually changing any of the problematic dynamics that are producing conflict to begin with. You know, and so uh, it's, the, it's the type of thing that allows for white people in America to say, how on earth could I be racist? I have black friends. And it's it's kind of prioritizing this sense of friendliness and a kind of amicability without looking at what are the issues that are keeping us from having deep, intimate, trusting relationships with one another. And so this woman was essentially saying, this is an inappropriate conversation because you're putting the the emphasis on our ability to get along with one another, rather on a systemic analysis of what is keeping us apart to begin with. And so... I saw in South Africa and Israel and Palestine and Northern Ireland and in the States as well that there's that people who are experiencing life under the the boot or the knee of people in power, that they're far more interested in talking about justice and some kind of reckoning and vindication than they are about reconciliation and forgiveness. Because what they're interested in is a change in behavior, a change in the, the relationship that is causing harm and the change in the structures that are causing harm. And over time, the language of reconciliation has tended to avoid those conversations, which I, I think is an absolute travesty because I in my mind, reconciliation, when understood in its fullness is the sense of being in right relationship with one another, being in healing and healthy relationship with one another. And how on earth can we do that in any kind of sustainable way if we are not actively dealing with systems of injustice and oppression that are keeping people apart and are perpetuating conflict? So for me, the pursuit of reconciliation is always, when it is done well, in intimate conversation and and relationship uh, with the pursuits of justice. They are not antithetical to one another, but so often they are positioned to be uh, enemies of one another that you either have to work on justice or reconciliation. And I think the hope lies in when we can find ways to build capacity at both levels.
0: If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalton. and we're speaking today with Michael McRae. He's a writer, facilitator, and story practitioner. We're talking about his recent book, I Am Not Your Enemy, Stories to Transform a Divided World. You said something just a moment ago that I want to dig deeper into. You said that those in power profit from the idea that we can all just say that we forgive one another and nothing actually has to structurally change, and that those who are actually in situations where they are being victimized by oppression, they don't necessarily want to use words of forgiveness. They want instead to talk about, and you used a couple of words, you used justice and reckoning. Let's unpack those words from the bottom up. What is justice and what is reckoning? Because I can imagine those those in power hear those words and just like those who are oppressed hear danger in the words of forgiveness and reconciliation those in power are going to hear threat in words like justice and reckoning so what is meant from from the the view from the bottom when those words are used
1: yeah well i think i think in a sense they both have to do with uh, making things right that have been wrong and it's it's worth just noting at the at the start of this conversation, I, I'm, a, I'm a white straight male from the South. So I live life very much on the top and uh, from above and from places of privilege. So I am not speaking about this as somebody who has lived life from below, from in oppression and in marginalization. And and so that's why I take really seriously the wisdom that I encountered through this travel, because it's not my personal experience in terms of my lived experience, but I want the lived experience of the people that I spoke with to really shape and change me. So I just want to acknowledge that at the start. But this, I think the ideas of of justice is about things have been done that were wrong. Things have been, uh, great harm has been caused and justice is the process through which we make these right, whether that's a sense of fairness or a sense of reparations. And I know that's a loaded word for a lot of people, but the root of it is repair. The idea is how do we repair the brokenness that has been caused, the wounds that have been caused and, and the idea of reckoning, I think is the sense of saying, at some point the, the bill comes due. At some point, you know, you look in the United States, you, you cannot oppress the let just for this for one example, the black people of this country. You cannot kidnap people in Africa, enslave them, and then lynch them and then put them in prison and have Jim Crow laws and red law. You cannot do all that for three hundred years and expect, oh, they'll probably all be fine. You know, like eventually there's a reckoning that has to come of sense of saying these demons that we've that we've created the demons of oppression and violence will come back, and we will have to face them, and we will either be overcome by them and be overwhelmed and uh and eaten by them, or we will we will come face to face with our own our own destruction and say we're going to choose a different path we are going to we're not going to be haunted by these ghosts. We are going to be transformed by them and to say there's a different path forward here. And and I think that's what the people that I met overseas uh, had to say. They were saying, look, we've lived in these divided societies, and this is what we've learned about uh, about how to live together well with people that you see as enemies.
0: One of the things that I appreciate about your book, I Am Not Your Enemy, is that it takes these large themes and it weaves them through the geography of the various places that you visit. I'm saying that in reference to this idea of reconciliation because, as we mentioned, it comes up at the very beginning of your book when you reach out to this professor in Palestine and she rebuffs you and she says, it's not right to talk about reconciliation. We need to talk about justice. But then that weaves together and comes up again later in the book when you're in South Africa. And you're talking to another practitioner about what it really looks like to have reconciliation be effective in practice. And what she responds to you by saying is, she says, it doesn't look like good feelings, it looks like land reform. And that really speaks to the heart of what you're saying here, is that is that in order for things to change in terms of relationship, there has to be economic and concrete shifts in the way that human beings in a
1: geography interact. Now, first of all, have I gotten that correctly from your book? Absolutely. Yeah. And she I think part of what Eleanor was saying in that chapter, which is called When Reconciliation Means Nothing, is just to say, often when we talk about reconciliation, specifically white people or people in privilege and whatever conflict you might be talking about, we tend to want to talk about reconciliation leads to change, you know, it leads to transformation, and we use really broad and kind of airy-fairy terms, and Eleanor is saying kind of talking in that way there's benefit to it but talking that way can also lead us to actually not make any concrete changes because we've never been very specific about what we mean and so she's saying what we mean then is reparation is returning of land redistribution of resources black economic empowerment that's what we're talking about that will lead to reconciliation so let's just let's just say what we mean
0: but one thing that also jumped out to me from that chapter was that As white South Africans were being brought into the truth and reconciliation process, and I may have misunderstood this, but it almost seemed like you were saying they were brought in under a different set of narratives, a narrative of we're going to talk about this, but nothing will actually change, and that was what enticed them to get involved in the process. Did I misunderstand that or is that what happened, that that black South Africans joined the process thinking that they were going to be talking about structural change and white South Africans joined the process thinking that they were going to talk and nothing was going to change?
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't know if I'm able to make any generalizations about that. And and I'm not an expert on the on the system of apartheid and, and that uh, reconciliation process there. But I, I would say it is absolutely true that there were many white people who saw this as a chance to basically kind of have have some words about it and then move on. And and part of that was because of the way that even Nelson Mandela was positioning it, talking about forgiveness and reconciliation, which was a really important conversation and, and, and framing for him. But as Eleanor says... A lot, especially a lot of the youth of today in South Africa are saying, we're not seeing this new South Africa we were promised. Poverty is still what it is. Our school systems are still bad. There's still an uneven distribution of resources. So we're not seeing the benefits that we were told were coming our way. And so I do think there were a lot of white folks who thought, you know, this is a chance to to just sort of move on and kind of escape the, what everyone thought was going to be a bloodbath. And thank God they escaped that. I mean, who who on earth wants that? But I know there are also many cases of, of white people in South Africa who really did want to have a conversation about how things can seriously change. And so, yeah, I I don't know that we can paint too broad a brush either way but this speaks to something
0: that is also part of the character of this book and that is you are getting at these kinds of larger issues through the process of story and we'll be unpacking what that means but as we're drawing this first part of our conversation to a close I just want to make sure that our listeners understand how you think about a story because I think sometimes we might misunderstand a story as well this is something that's fictional this is something that's not true. You're using story in a very different way so as As we're we're moving towards break, if you could give us just a brief overview as we're moving into this conversation, how you see story and narrative working as a part of this process of healing and justice.
1: Well, stories are one of the primary ways that we as humans communicate. It is perhaps the, the primary way that we talk about what it is to be human. And stories are just the ways that we tell each other what has happened to us. Um, that's what a story is. It's how people talk about the things that have happened to them. And every every di- every kind of reconciliation peace process that I'm aware of has this idea of dialogue and sharing stories as a primary piece of it because the shortest distance between two people is a story. When we tell the truth about what has happened to us, as opposed to just arguing our positions and our opinions, the stories communicate the needs that are underlying the the pain that we feel as human beings, the loss that we feel. And that's what actually can reduce the canyons between people when we're able to say, I don't want to just talk to you about what I believe Israel should be or whether it's a one state or a two state. Let me tell you about what it felt like When my loved one was killed, when my daughter was shot in the back of the head, when my daughter was blown up by a suicide bomber, let's talk about that pain. And people are able to connect to that in a way that they can't connect when you're just arguing political positions on things. And so I think when you're trying to create empathy and trying to to show humanity to one another, uh, stories are the best and most effective way to do that. If you're just joining us, this is
0: Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Michael McRae. We're talking about his recent book, I Am Not Your Enemy Stories to Transform a Divided World. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and today we're speaking with Michael McRae. He's a writer, facilitator, and story practitioner. We're talking about his recent book, I Am Not Your Enemy, Stories to Transform a Divided World. There's a phrase that you use in your book, I Am Not Your Enemy, And I think it was a phrase just kind of used in passing, but it jumped out to me like a neon light. And I really think that if we dig into it, it's going to illuminate for our listeners today a lot of what you're doing in the book. Here's the phrase. The phrase is the DNA of fear. And when I think about that phrase in the context of your book, I realize that what I think you're meaning by this phrase, the DNA of fear, is that when someone presents to you and tells you that they're afraid, there is a set of stories underneath that, a set of experiences, a way that they have woven together a particular way of thinking about these facts in front of them. And and the response to that set of narratives is fear. But if we only deal with the surface fear, and not with the, the causes that are beneath it, the geographies and the experiences and the facts on the ground, we will never actually get at at the the root of that fear. So I'd I'd just like to explore with you for a little while this idea of the fact that every one of the the moments that you're talking about here where there is violent conflict, it has story upon story, history upon history of wrongs being done on both sides. So first of all, just talk to me a little bit about the DNA of fear and how we can begin to tease it out and understand it.
1: Yeah, that phrase came to me from... um... An Israeli woman named Robbie Damelin, whose story I tell in the book, who was speaking about it in the context of, of Israeli society. And she essentially was saying, if you don't understand the DNA of fear uh, in the Jewish people of Israel, then you'll never understand this place about why this conflict is continuing. And so I think what was helpful to me about that is, is thinking. On one level, there's there's sort of some poetry to it and the sense of fear that is at the kind of the blood and bone level that's so deep within us that it becomes part of who we are and forms our identity. But with also new understandings of genetics and neuroscience, we also know that a lot of fear and trauma is actually passed literally through genetics and is carried in the mother. The cortisol can go into uh, into the genes. And so there also can be a sense that there is actually a DNA of fear that can be passed on from generation to generation and traumatize people. And those are built upon stories. You know, those the stories that we tell form our imaginations about the world. And so when we tell stories that say we are part of this people and there was another people that hated us and wanted us dead and we begin to tell these stories, even when they're true, but we tell them in such a way that it, it convinces us that we are not safe as long as this other is out there. And so we do what what humans are programmed to do, which is survive. And so we, we begin to weaponize our fear in order to... To eliminate whatever is is uh, is threatening us, and and that's what perpetuates conflict is this idea of of fear that we we commit acts of violence that make each other afraid, and we tell stories about that that tell us to continue to fear one another, and so we build walls between us that tell us that we should be afraid of what's on the other side of us, and so it, it goes on and on and on. But I think this language of DNA of fear is just a way of speaking to. The idea that this isn't just some sort of easy, oh, I was startled by something. It goes much deeper to say this this is a fear that becomes part of who we are because we are formed by our stories. And so part of how we unlearn that fear is to restory ourselves and to begin to tell new stories about who we are and seeing ourselves as bigger than victims or bigger even than just oppressors as well as telling stories that begin to humanize the the other so that we can see them with empathy and compassion rather than only fear and hatred Well, and you just used a word there
0: to humanize the other. And when we think about the effects of this DNA of fear, and you you mentioned the example of if you don't understand the DNA of fear of the Jewish people, you'll never understand how they are maneuvering within the land of Israel against the people of Palestine. Part of the concrete effect of the dna of fear that we're talking about is to tell stories about the person across the divide that makes them less than a person that literally dehumanizes them so talk to me a little bit about this process of dehumanization and then from there i'm going to ask you some questions about rehumanization but let's linger here for a moment what does it mean to dehumanize
1: the other well i think in a really simple way Human beings are complex and complicated and full of multitudes. And so one sense of dehumanization is that when we convince ourselves that other people are only one thing, that being terrorists, that being illegal immigrants, that being thugs, that being racist, whatever it is, we have a way of just saying you are this thing. But that's never true. Human beings are never only one thing. We are always more than that. And so that is part of the process of dehumanization. And And the consequence then is that when we come to see each other as less than human, because of the priority we give human life above all other life, when we see other people as less than human, it gives permission in our psyches to begin to commit great acts of violence on them. And so... You see this in the way that Hitler talked about the Jewish people in Europe referring to them as vermin. You saw it in the way that the Hutus began to talk about the Tutsis in Rwanda calling them cockroaches. And so there's, there are all kinds of ways. Wh- I mean, in the United States, uh, white people referred to black people as monkeys. And so it's a it's a consistent tactic when we are looking to commit acts of violence is that we begin to, to find ways to speak of the other as less than human
0: well one of the places where that came to me most poignantly was in a story you tell from Northern Ireland and a woman that you, you speak to named Joe and Joe's father was killed by a bomb that was planted by an Irish Republican Army operative and then later she has the the opportunity to meet and have interaction with the man that literally killed her father and as a result of these interactions that man who killed her father with a bomb eventually came to say that he believed that he could sit down and have a cup of tea with Joe's father. Now, what I got from that story is If I'm understanding correctly, the process of moving from dehumanization to rehumanization, it's a process for moving from a story of saying this is my one dimensional enemy to having instead empathy and the possibility of relationship. And even to feel deep remorse for an act that has been done, because apparently this man began to feel a great deal of guilt and remorse for having killed Joe's father. But if you could walk us a little bit through those steps that Joe took and this man took to move from dehumanization to rehumanization.
1: Yeah. So Joe Barry is a woman who lives in England and uh, her father was a member of the British Parliament. He was killed by an IRA bomb by a guy named Patrick McGee. And Patrick McGee then went into prison for uh, quite a while. But in 1998, when the Good Friday Accords were signed that released political prisoners during the Troubles, Patrick McGee walked free. And so he and Joe had the chance to meet one another. And he had been wanting to meet her and she wasn't so sure. But when she got a call saying the time has been arranged and he's ready to meet, she decided to go for it. And the first meeting, you know, in some ways went exactly as you would expect for her and this sense of kind of just wanting to understand why. That's always the biggest question often for, for victims is um, why? Why did you do this? Why did you plant this bomb? And and he went into all these political positioning, you know, positions just to say, well, this was important for the struggle and so on and so forth. And what he was missing was to hear the pain of what he caused. He was into political justification. And it was that moment when he realized that and finally turned to Joe and said, you know what? I actually don't know what I'm saying. I don't know who I am anymore. What I want to know is, can you speak about your rage to me? Can you tell me about your pain? And he took a chance to open himself up to the pain of that he had caused someone else. And so that was that was an opening for her to kind of step in and say, yeah, let me tell you about what happened when you killed my father. And and so I think what dehumanization does is it It puts us at odds with one another in a way that says my value is greater than your value and whatever you're feeling, you have deserved it. And in fact, you're probably not feeling anything that's worth me even paying attention to. But the process of rehumanization was in the case of Patrick and Joe to pay attention to one another, to sit down and be open with curiosity to one another, I, I talk about this idea of, re- of, of uh, dismantling the notion of an enemy that you need three things. One is proximity. We have to actually get closer to one another. We have to shorten the distance. But that won't be good enough because you can just look at slave plantations or prisons to know that simply being in close proximity to one another does not mean that you're going to get along. So you also need two other things. One is curiosity. You have to wonder and want to know. The third is humility. We have to ask the idea, uh, ask the question. Has it ever occurred to us that we might be wrong about what we have believed about the other person? And those three things are present in the story of Patrick and Joe from both sides of them for her to say, maybe I was wrong about who I believed Patrick to be and Patrick to say, maybe I was wrong about who I believed Joe's father to be or about the legitimacy of the pain that I've caused. And in hearing the stories then about Joe's father and, and her kind of fleshing out who her father was, Patrick had a realization that. You know, actually, had I known your father, we would have probably been friends. And what a startling realization for somebody who had committed that kind of violence.
0: If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Michael McCrae about his recent book, I Am Not Your Enemy, Stories That Transform a Divided World. Well, you gave us just a moment ago this three-step process for beginning rehumanization, proximity, curiosity, and humility. But it occurs to me that there are those who are in positions of power who would have an interest in undermining the positive effects of these three things, proximity, curiosity, and humility. So... How does one go about overcoming the obstacles to proximity, curiosity, and humility that systems and institutions and governments and those who have power and privilege wish to put in our way
1: yeah it's a great question. i don't know if I have a sufficient answer to it. you know I think in in my own life, I have other people in prison to have a sense of like who prisoners are, criminals, people on death row. And there are some real concrete structures that try to keep people apart. And from seeing what's on the inside, I I found a way to get on a volunteer list at a prison and to finally just get inside and to to sit down with people in prison and to listen to who they were and their stories and their backgrounds and to see in many ways just how similar we were. And so there are these systems and structures built up to keep people apart. And I don't know that there's any script for or kind of, Roadmap for necessarily how you get around it. I think it's finding out who runs in the circles that you want to be in and who are the gatekeepers there and trying to build relationships of trust, knowing that they're that. And and what happened for me, just kind of to share the consequences of this, is that I was eventually banned from every prison in Tennessee because when I became friends with people in prison, I began to try to organize. People on the outside to advocate for the well-being of people on the inside. And the prison decided that I was a threat to the security of the institution of the prison system and sent me one of the things they sent me in their dismissal letter was that it is against prison protocol to develop friendships with prisoners. And so you see the way in which relationships, relationships of trust and affection are seen as threats to systems of, of oppression because it's not in their interest for you to develop to humanize people on the inside their system works well when you dehumanize because that allows you to say oh well whatever they're getting they deserve it or why don't you go ahead and kill them that should be fine but when you're actually able to go in and say oh this is a human being worthy of love and the possibility of redemption then the whole system breaks down and so it does become very complicated to overcome that and and so part of why I'm saying I don't really know how to do it is because I've now been banned from Tennessee prisons for six years and haven't found a way back in. So sometimes this is the, and this is the, the, the part that feels hopeless. Like sometimes the systems and structures do win and they're, they are successful in keeping you apart But then my response here has been to co-found an organization that's working on trying to dismantle uh, mass incarceration in Tennessee. So you come at them from another way.
0: See, this is so fascinating to me because you have just given me concretely what I'm talking about. Like this, this is not subtle. This is an actual example of a moment where empathy begins to to manifest itself. And an institution literally blocks the possibility of empathy and friendship building. And so when we're thinking about those sorts of things, then this was something that was so consistent through each of the stories that you were telling in, in this book, I'm Not Your Enemy, Is the opportunity for empathy, the opportunity to have a story that allows you to shift your position, that really opens up to hospitality. I think that's a a word we haven't said yet, but it's important here. All of these pieces allow for a, a way of getting across that divide. And so I think... I'll just lay it on the table and say when I first opened your book I think I expected it to be a different kind of book I think I expected it to be a white savior kind of book what I, what I found instead and I don't mean that as a criticism I mean that, that just looking at your picture on the back of the book and, and starting to read the book I like I know what this is going to be all about I was so surprised to see how disarmed I was when I started to get into these stories and I found myself rethinking some things that I, I think I hadn't given sufficient thought to. So what I'm finding here in this conversation is a similar sort of thing. Like this is not simply an intellectual exercise for you. This is a place where you have you have gone into these into these moments like going into the prison and you have risked something. So let's just talk for a moment about what does it mean to risk in a situation like this? What is at risk and what does risk look like for things to change?
1: It's a great... Great question. And honestly, you saying that you thought this was going to be a white savior book and you were delighted to find that it wasn't is like the best review that I've heard of my book so far. So thanks for that. I yeah, I think there is no way there is no way to find peace to challenge the uh, assumptions that we have about other people to unlearn toxic and, and dangerous ways of thinking without great risk, because we build entire worlds around the ways that we think, the ways that we see the world. Like this entire country was built on the concept of white supremacy and that w- the white body and the white person is inherently more valuable and supreme over all other bodies and people. And we can do what we need to in order to to keep that sense of, of power and, and prestige. And so to begin to challenge that and to say that is not the right way to think. In fact, that is a a demonic ideology that runs the risk of dismantling the entirety of what's been built uh, in a sense, when the foundation, when it's the foundation. And so that's why people refuse to look at these things, why they get so angry and so violent when you dare to say something like black lives matter, because how is this, how is this whole uh, experiment supposed to be maintained? If we start saying black lives matter, when the whole idea from this get-go was that they don't. And so I think it it is, I try to have, even while I need I know that as a white person, you've got to push and push and push and challenge and confront, to also have a sense of empathy also for the people that we're trying to convince to say, I know that this may feel like the undoing of the world to you because you've built your life on a certain way of thinking. We all have. When people who come from, um, you know, I grew up in, in a kind of a conservative Christian environment. And when you start to ask questions about that and uh, and rethink that, you have a full on identity crisis. I mean, no joke. It's like every you can go into deep depression because it's like, what am I supposed to do now? Who am I supposed to be? Because the things that I knew were true, I now know that that's more complicated than that. And so... It's not to say that people then need to get a pass when they're unwilling to rethink what they thought they knew. But I think it is to say that we have to we do have to have a sense of of, uh, grace and I think gentleness and compassion also for those who are really having to risk everything that they have believed about the world in order to change and Dear God, I hope they do change and that we all continue to change, myself included, as I as I continue to unlearn racism and sexism and homophobia from my upbringing. You know, that takes time and it's and it's risky and it's overwhelming, but it's some of the most important work that I'll, I'll ever do.
0: If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Michael McRae. He's an author, educator, facilitator, and he uses the power of personal stories to heal harm, make meaning, and create connection. Today we're talking about his recent book, I Am Not Your Enemy, Stories to Transform a Divided World, where he goes across the globe to Israel, Palestine, to Northern Ireland and to South Africa to examine and explore stories of reconciliation, not as a a lip service, but rather as the deep, deep structural work of justice and reparative change. We'll be back in a moment. Hey folks, this is David. Thank you for listening and thank you for supporting the work that I do. As you're probably aware, in addition to this show, I help produce a number of other programs about culture and faith. One of them is the Commonweal podcast, produced by my friends over at Commonweal Magazine. For almost a century now, Commonweal has staked a claim for Catholic principles and perspectives in American life and for lay people's voices within the church. Their podcast features a wide spectrum of voices discussing art, politics, religion, and civil society. Each episode offers 3 or 4 segments that amplify the pages of the print magazine and move into new frontiers. I've been a reader of Commonweal for a long time, and I'm thrilled to share this new podcast with you, whether you're a long-time reader yourself or just discovering it for the first time. You can find the Commonweal podcast on Spotify, Google Play, and Apple Podcasts, as well as on their website, commonwealmagazine.org/podcast. That's commonwealmagazine.org slash podcast. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. We're speaking today with Michael T. McRae. He's an author, educator, and facilitator using the power of personal stories to heal harm, make meaning, and create connection. Today, we're talking about his recent book, I Am Not Your Enemy, Stories to Transform a Divided World. At the beginning of our conversation, you mentioned that you had done a degree in conflict resolution in Northern Ireland. And I'm wondering if you wouldn't mind briefly telling our listeners how it was that you got to that program in conflict resolution. What was it that got you into this work?
1: Well, it's always challenging to answer that in a short way, which I know you have to do for these interviews because it's essentially then my life story. I will say then, I think a couple of things that were really key for me. One, I grew up in a in the family of a small town rural doctor. So there was a sense that I grew up with that being part of healing and medicine in a way is a worthwhile endeavor. And I knew and everyone I didn't want to be a doctor in the sense that my dad was, but I did find a desire to be part of healing in some way and bringing medicine to people's lives. And so in my work I would think of that as stories, as stories are a type of medicine. And When I got to college uh, in here in Nashville, where I live, I I studied with a professor named Richard Good, who um, I majored in history. And he had a way of teaching history that was always unexpected. He never ever taught a history class from the perspective uh, of those that you would expect to hear from. So for instance, when I studied colonial America, we studied it from the perspective of women, people that were enslaved uh, and Native Americans. Uh, No white men were studied in the history of colonial America. So I began to see the power of listening to the stories that people rarely hear. And so Richard, uh, Dr. Good, suggested. Uh, that I look into some peace, kind of making peace building organizations like Christian Peacemaker Teams in Palestine, and so I went and uh, worked with Christian Peacemaker Teams in the West Bank and wrote my first book about that called Letters from Apartheid Street. And really, after that experience of doing nonviolent direct action in the West Bank and being parts of conversations about solidarity and and justice and reconciliation, I had a strong feeling of I want to I want to pursue this. I want to actually study this intently and intentionally. And so I decided to pursue that as a master's program and then found this program in, in, um, from Trinity College, Dublin. But their reconciliation and conflict resolution program was based in Belfast because it was a city where so much of the violence and the troubles happened for, for decades. So I had the great opportunity to do my master's there and to learn from, from people who had lived through that conflict and were finding ways to live without violence going on over 20 years now.
0: So you mentioned the power of storytelling, and I think maybe listeners to podcasts, listeners to radio, they may have an idea of what storytelling is. Maybe they've listened to the Moth Radio Hour, and they say, oh, yeah, somebody gets on stage, and they tell a humorous yet enlightening story in less than five minutes, and and we all clap. You don't exactly mean that when you're talking about story. So what was it that you discovered in this journey about storytelling specifically that made this your mechanism, your vehicle for unlocking these kinds of moments of change? And what, if you were to give it to us in a a few sentences, what are the mechanics of telling a story that you're looking for here?
1: Well, I think what made me decide to really want to pursue story work was being in Belfast. There's a a similar type of uh, event to the moth called 10 by nine and it started in Belfast. And uh, I discovered it when I was there, fell in love with it and then started running my own monthly 10 by nine event here in Nashville for the last six and a half years. And so I, I saw these incredible human, personal, vulnerable, funny, heartbreaking, traumatizing, terrific stories on stage. And then I had a program called Conflict Transformation, where uh, it was it was run by a man from Northern Ireland who was um, who spent, I think, 12 or 13 years in prison for killing a Catholic man during the Troubles. Um, And he was running this course alongside the grandson of the architect of apartheid in South Africa, this man named Wilhelm Fervurd. And they they put us through all my classmates had this five day residential where they put us through this program called Journey Through Conflict, where it was about giving each person a chance to try to tell a sense of their life story. How did I get from birth to where I am now? What were the major turning points? What were the influences? Why did I do what, I, uh, what I've done? Um, why have I come to think in the way that I've come to think? And we sat in a circle and we listened to one another over cups of tea and walks through the woods. And I remember feel, I don't remember a time in my life when I have felt so alive as I did In those moments where you realize the great capacity for healing and for connection that comes through setting aside your presuppositions about people and just listening to the truth, their truth about who they are and how they have arrived at the place that they are. And so I I decided from that moment that I wanted to, to pursue this and use my skills in facilitation, my skills in writing, my skills in teaching to try to help shorten the distance between people and use narrative and true personal storytelling as a way uh, of healing and connection. And so I think the mechanics of storytelling are to speak the truth about, you know, let me just back up to say stories uh, typically have a few things. One is a setting, um, a plot, (laughs) characters, some tension and resolution. And so when I am listening to stories, you know, it's a story when you can have a sense of where this is taking place, who is living into the narrative arc? Who is this happening to? What is happening to them? What uh, is it that they're struggling for, that they're working to resolve? What what enters into their story that is unexpected and could throw everything off? And then how have they found a way to come to terms with that? And that's what is present in all the stories that I hear in the book is a is people talking about what it is to be them and the place that they're in, what has happened to them, and how they have come to deal with it. Because that is what it is to be alive. And stories help us make sense then of our own paths and our own processes in the
0: world. I so appreciate that answer. And there's something that you said in the midst of that answer that I want to circle back to. You're talking not just about building the capacity to tell stories, but also the capacity to listen. And in that light, I want to bring up a a brief quotation from your book, I Am Not Your Enemy, where you say, Being able to articulate the story of the other is an indispensable skill in transforming conflict into something that can help us. If we cannot summarize the other's position in a way that feels recognizable to them, we probably don't understand. And so I want to explore this relational aspect of storytelling where you're not just telling your own story, but you're listening to the story of another where you can say it back to them in a way that they can then nod and say, yeah, you got it. Talk to me about that dynamic.
1: Well, it's interesting. So for the last three years, some of the work that I have done is with an organization called Narrative 4. And the Narrative 4 process is called a story exchange. And the way that it works is that people swap personal stories with one another. I would tell you my story, whatever that story might be, and you would tell me a story from your life. We would listen deeply to one another. And then in a circle with you know a, a group of people, I would then retell your story in first person language as if your story happened to me. So I would say, hi, my name is David and I run a show called Things Not Seen. And I would tell your story as if it were mine and you would become me. And this process, we've been doing this process for about eight years, and we've we've been able to facilitate the exchange of well over a hundred thousand stories around the world, as people are finally getting to um, satisfy, in some ways, the hunger that we've had for connection and for hospitality, because it's a real chance—the narrative four process—to be hospitable to someone else's story, and so I think that's kind of what I'm getting at: the practice of that is to to say you know if if i'm talking very concretely if i'm in a, if i'm in a fight with my wife and we're having tension over something the most sure way that I have to de-escalate that tension is for me to be able to articulate, to say, here's what I'm understanding you to say, tell me if I've got this right. And when she is able to hear out of my mouth a recognition of her own truth and her own thoughts and her own position, we are far more likely to get closer to some kind of resolution and transformation than if we continue to just go back and forth about our different positions. And so I think that is, you know, the ability to empathize, the ability to understand the truth of someone else is not the the end goal. It is not necessarily the thing that is going to transform conflict. But I don't know that you can sustainably transform harmful systems or harmful dynamics or relationships without this ability to say, okay, what you're saying is not what I think. It is not my belief and position. But It is. I want to understand it. So here, let me have a go at this and try to say this is what I think you're trying to say. And the follow up to that is, did I get that right? Because that's where the real relationship comes in is to have a dialogue about that, to to be open to being corrected, to be open to say, no, I still haven't understood it. I want to understand because it's so much easier to be in relationship with people when we understand them. If you're
0: just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Michael McCrae about his recent book, I Am Not Your Enemy, Stories to Transform a Divided World. Well, as we're thinking about the mechanics of storytelling and story listening, it occurs to me that a lot of these interactions that you're talking about are happening in face-to-face contexts. I'm wondering, as we have seen the explosion of social media and the ability to communicate across vast distances in very rapid time, how has that changed the art of storytelling and story listening? Has it made things easier to create the kind of empathy that you're talking about, or has it created new obstacles for empathy
1: yeah you know, I think it goes both ways. You know, I don't think it's ever just one thing. I think one of the benefits of social media is that we have been able to get stories out to millions of people at a rate that has never been seen before. That has been a key part of the organizing that you know has led to what's happening in the streets of America today. You know, For the story of the death of George Floyd to go viral so quickly is what has allowed this uprising to take place in the streets of, uh, of the country. And I think when we're most optimistic about what's happening, we can see that this is the response of empathy. People being able to, uh, I, I, speaking as white people, for white people to be able to to look at what is happening to black people in America from police and be able to say, let me try to imagine that that is me. Let me try to imagine that I'm the one with the knee on my neck. Let me try to imagine that it's my brother, my cousin, my son, that that's, when when we're able to do that, it can lead us toward trying to put that empathy into action to make the world a better place. So I do think social media has has helped with that. I also think it, it can allow us In some ways to become, I don't know, kind of like desensitized to stories because we're now overwhelmed by them. There's a new video every time I get on, you know, social media to the point that it's pretty normal human response. that You just scroll on, you know, it's just like I can't take another thing in. And so you begin to. I find I can begin even to shut down my openness to stories because I'm like, there are too many of them now. I'm absolutely inundated by this and my I don't have the capacity to take on any more compassion or empathy because I'm feeling overwhelmed. And so I do think that's that's kind of the catch with it, is that we can get so many stories out there that it can be really transformative, but we can also begin to, to push people to stay isolated and uninvolved because they're simply a, at the point of emotional overwhelm. I
0: think I... I... I really appreciate what you're saying. I think that there's another aspect of this that I also want to ask about, and that is when someone is hearing someone else's story, and I've, I've seen this happen in real time on social media, there's an immediate sense of doubt of the story like oh you're telling me that this happened to you but I don't really believe that this is real that didn't actually happen so there's there's a sense also that when someone is telling you their story they may be trying to manipulate you and so as you're going through this process how do you not only disarm the defensiveness of dehumanization but how do you also disarm that reflex that says I'm being manipulated and I need to be on my guard when I'm hearing somebody else's story.
1: Yeah. And I do think that's one of the complications with social media, as you say, because oftentimes it's there's you have no relationship with the other person. And that's why I think in-person storytelling is so much more effective because the body language, the tone of voice, the look in the eyes, it all makes a difference. You know, some people, there are clearly going to be some who are still going to be doubtful and still be skeptical. But I do find that it's it's less common when you can actually be in the same space as one another and feel a sense of security and like that there's a safety here for us to explore this. And part of what makes a difference, I think, is when I may be doubtful of the truth of your story, but if I actually see in you an openness to my story and my truth, I may actually begin to mirror that openness and that trust. And so it's, it's a dialectic, it's a back and forth, it's a dialogue kind of in this way of thinking about trust and how we can remain open to each other.
0: And so as you've been doing this work, you've had the opportunity to travel all over the world. You've had the opportunity to make some amazing relationships. What have you discovered in yourself that has changed as a result of these travels and these relationships?
1: Oh, so much stuff. I mean, I started traveling when my first trip overseas to Israel was when I was 11. And uh, I lived overseas briefly as a kid and I did a study abroad and I lived overseas for grad school. So it's been 20 years of changing. I think some of the early roots of it would be to, would, would say I grew up in a very small town, 2,700 people, three traffic lights. My high school was in one hallway. And then I had the opportunity to travel and I realized that the world was far bigger than I ever imagined it could be. And that there is um, that my experience of the world is only one small experience of the world, and that there are so many other ways to understand what it is to be alive and to be human. And that travel, it was really, as Mark Twain says, it's fatal to bigotry and narrow-mindedness. And that was true for me. It opened up the sense of the world is expansive, and I'm I'm a small part of it. And I think the most recent travel I did that I talk about in the book, part of what was compelling to me was, and I tried to do this throughout the book, was to say, how is it that what I'm seeing, the wisdom that I'm seeing here in Israel and Palestine and Northern Ireland and South Africa, what does that have to say about the dynamics that are at work in my own country? And as I have grown to, I think one of the things I've been realizing is that as, as I have moved into a deep sense of solidarity with the Palestinian struggle and have become very critical of the Israeli occupation of, of the West Bank and Gaza, and, and then especially even of kind of the liberal Israelis who are just benefiting from living in a bubble uh, in Israel, I suddenly had this realization of that's who I am back home. Like that's, that's the character that I play in the story of back home. I'm not the radical solidarity person. I'm the, the white guy from the South who was born the son of a doctor, who was benefiting from this system and how convenient it is for me to stay silent about the things here, but to be very outspoken about the things in other parts of the world. And so I left this trip, and it had been growing over time, but this trip especially that resulted in this book really helped me see I cannot with integrity speak about injustice in other places of the world if I'm not going to be active in trying to deal with the injustices that are in my very home in my very city and state and that people like me have been perpetuating for the entirety of the history of this country.
0: Well, you ask several of the people who are in your book, I Am Not Your Enemy, and who are telling their stories, you ask them the question, how is it that you stay hopeful? What keeps you hopeful? And it occurs to me that I want to ask you that question as well. As you're doing this work, as you're telling these stories and collecting these stories, I'm sure that there are frustrations and you, you have had the opportunity to see some of the worst of humanity uh, manifest.
1: What is it that keeps you hopeful? Well, I think it's, it's the stories, and it's, that's why I really go look for them. In some ways, it's very selfish that I, I go look for the stories that I tell in this book because I need to hear them, to be able to hear from Rami Hanan, who's an Israeli whose daughter was killed by a suicide bomber, a Palestinian suicide bomber, and to hear from Basama Arameen, who's a Palestinian man whose daughter was shot in the head at 10 years old by an Israeli soldier, and to see them be able to say, I'm going to use the force of my grief... To make a change in my country so that no one else has to experience this same agony. That is a, a matter of hope for me. I feel hopeful looking at the news today. I know a lot of white people are looking and saying, oh, this is a really scary time. Buildings are being burned. But I'm seeing I'm seeing an uprising and a call for change that I find very hopeful. I'm seeing lots of. Uh, people of all colors, shapes, and sizes, and orientations, and backgrounds—everything—marching in the streets together, saying, "We need justice for all of us, and not just for some of us." And so, I actually think this is a moment filled with hope of saying things may be changing because there's a sense to which the collective is saying, "We're we're now going to be standing side by side and calling for change." And and so, it's this, it's those sorts of stories of people who who have said. We have a path we can choose here as a result, as a response to the oppression, and the violence. We can respond with equal oppression and equal violence. Or we can say we're going to channel the energy, the Mm -hmm. nuclear energy of the suffering that has happened to us and turn it into a vehicle for creating a healthier society in which there is equity and there is compassion and there is right relationship uh, and there is trust. And so I think that's where I am finding hope at the moment. Well, Michael McCray, it was such an unexpected joy. To read your book, I Am Not
0: Your Enemy. As I said, I, I walked into it thinking that it was going to be one type of experience, and I was so pleasantly surprised to be knocked off of that course of expectation and to discover instead the deep, deep empathy and hospitality of your writing. I'm so enthralled now with your work. I'm going to be looking into the Narrative 4 program that you mentioned because, because I'm, I'm deeply moved by this, this idea of empathetic deep listening. So thank you so mm-hmm much first of all for making these travels and going into these deep places of risk thank you for writing the book that chronicles it but also thank you for taking time today to speak to me and my listeners
1: absolutely david i really appreciate you reading it and thanks for having me on with such a thoughtful uh, conversation i'm really grateful We've been speaking today with Michael McCrae. He's an author, educator, and facilitator
0: who uses the power of personal stories to heal harm, make meaning, and create connection. He works most often with the global empathy nonprofit Narrative 4, and he hosts 10 by 9 Nashville Storytelling. He writes and speaks on issues of story, conflict, and reconciliation. Today, we've been talking about his recent book, I Am Not Your Enemy, Stories to Transform a Divided World.